Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. And hello and welcome. This is from the diamond on Sports Radio 929 The Game. I am Grant McCauley live with you from the Kia Studios on a Sunday afternoon. This is our time, and this is your time. If you're into Braves and baseball like I am, that's what we're going to talk about for the next couple of hours right here on the show. Before we get started, I want to remind you, as always, make sure you're following me on social media. You can find me on Twitter, at Grant McCauley there, at Grant McCauley on Instagram as well. You can follow the show on Twitter, at FromTheDiamond, underscore on the end, and on Instagram, at FromTheDiamond as well. And if you need links to all of those things, FromTheDiamond.com is certainly the place for that. And make sure you are subscribed to From the Diamond, wherever you get your podcast and find it on the Odyssey app. So now that you know how you can connect and how you can hear From the Diamond, let's get into today's show. I think it's going to be an interesting one because we've had an interesting week of Braves baseball. There have been some highs. There have also, unfortunately, been a couple of lows. And in the form of injury, the Braves have to keep grinding on through because they are having name after name end up on the injured list. And we know that this is something every team has to go through. At some point throughout the season, 162 games, you are going to deal with With injury, you're going to lose some key contributors. But if you had this bingo card, and let me read it to you, of Max Fried, Kyle Wright, Travis Darno, Michael Harris, Rysel Iglesias, and Callum McHugh, it was going to be a bit of a rough one for you. That's six major contributing members of what will be the Braves' 26-man roster at optimal conditions. And the most recent injury is, I think, perhaps the most troubling because Travis Darno suffered a concussion in Saturday night's loss to the San Diego Padres on a bizarre play at home plate that we're going to talk about a little bit later as the show goes on. But first and foremost, we want to see Travis heal up and get back out there pretty quick. But as we know and as we've learned uh, throughout the sporting world over the past decade or two, uh, concussions are not something you're going to play around with, and that's why MLB has that seven-day concussion IL so that nobody has to feel like they need to be a warrior and push their way through or they're going to have to miss a couple of weeks. But either way, health of the player first, though, uh, you know, well wishes to Travis Darno to get on back out there. But as I mentioned, I mean, injury has been the story for the Braves. I mean, a hot start, you know, five and one road trip, a walk off win over the Padres in the home opener. Everything seemed to be clicking despite some of these injuries. The last couple of nights, the offense has been unable to come up with the big rallies late in games. The Padres, I think we knew this was going to be a tough series. Sweeping the St. Louis Cardinals should make the Braves feel good. Put that in a box and put it right over there. The San Diego Padres are also going to be a tough team. And they've shown that throughout the course of this series. A powerful lineup that figures only to get better once they get Fernando Tatis Jr. back in there. They're going to, I think, be hanging around in that National League West picture. And if you're asking me for playoff teams in 2023, then the Padres were certainly one of those. And I think they're one of the top three or four teams in the National League here this year. But as you do look at the big picture for the Braves, it's certainly good to go out and have that 5-1 and road trip. And to come home and pick up a win, now they've got to go about the business of picking up a series split as they have Sunday night baseball. And we're going to get another look at Dylan Dodd. We talk about highlights from the Braves over the first week of the season. Dylan Dodd most definitely qualifies as one of those five innings of one-run ball 
in his major league debut against a very tough St. Louis Cardinals team as the Braves did pick up that sweep. On the flip side of that coin for the Braves rotation, and we'll talk about the injuries that they have had to deal with and are still dealing with, with Max Fried being out with Kyle Wright on the cusp of coming back. They brought two rookies north with them on the 26-man roster, or at least the first couple of turns through rotation. Jared Schuster is the other one. Jared Schuster had some difficulties against the Washington Nationals in his debut, and he had some of the same ones crop up in the first inning against the San Diego Padres as well on Friday night, and that is walks. And that's not something that he was really known to do in the minor leagues, certainly not something he was showing the Braves in spring training, but perhaps something that all pitchers fall into, not just nerves from your major league debut, but trying to be a little bit too fine, trying to make too many perfect pitches can sometimes keep you from making a competitive pitch. And I think that might have been a little bit of what Jared Schuster was dealing with in both of his big league starts. He's been optioned back down to AAA Gwinnett. I do think we're going to see him again at some point this year, and I do think that there's a lot you can learn from. And as I've said before, and as I believe in life and in baseball, failure is sometimes your biggest teacher. And you know, baseball is a game where if you're a great hitter, you fail 7 out of 10 times to get a hit. That's probably not a great conversion rate for most jobs. And as far as pitchers are concerned, I like to say this little thing, and I don't even know where I heard it from, but maybe I'll slap it on a T-shirt. Humility is just a pitch away, and you're going to find that out pretty soon as well. But cliches and T-shirt ideas aside, Jared Schuster I do think has some promise, and I do think is going to be a factor for the Braves at some point in 2023 and hopefully use the things that he has learned in facing these couple of hitters in his big league spring training to go down to the minors, sharpen those skills, and have the opportunity to come on back. I mean, think about what Kyle Wright had to go through for not just one season, but 2019, he came up, he made the opening day roster, and he was optioned back down to Gwinnett within a couple of weeks. And then it took 2020, there were some ups and downs. He got blasted in a playoff start by the L.A. Dodgers in 2020. Then he came back in 2021 and, and kind of had to say, look, I've got to reinvent myself as a pitcher because things just weren't working. He went down to Gwinnett, continued to grind. He'd already seen the big leagues in 2018, 2019, 2020. He's back in AAA in 2021, and by the time he got to the World Series, long story short, Kyle Wright threw some very important innings, but it was what he did in Gwinnett prior to that that really got Kyle back on track. Now, I don't say anything, uh, uh, any of that to tell you that it's going to take four more years for Jared Schuster to figure it out. In, in fact, I hope it does not. But you know, development of pitchers and development of players is not a linear path in a lot of cases. You don't just get to move forward and you know, bounce right back when you face adversity. Sometimes you have to face it time and time again and figure out what adjustments you need to make. And Kyle Wright figured those things out. And then he won 20 games last year. He's the only pitcher in baseball to do that. And now he's on the cusp of making his way back to the big leagues and to the rotation at a time in which the Braves sorely need him. Max Freed dealing with that hamstring injury. I thought this was interesting. As the Braves were doing their introductions on the home opener on Thursday, you had everybody lined up up the first baseline. Everybody gets called out. They get a nice ovation and all of that. Max Freed went just uh, gallivanting on out there, jogging out to join his teammates. I think that's nothing but a positive because he's dealing with that hamstring issue. I asked Brian Snitker about it uh, prior to the game on Saturday, and he laughed and said, look, I was telling him, hey, slow down, buddy. Don't hurt yourself. Make sure everything's good. And, in fact, everything is. Max has continued to throw, and the Braves are hoping that they're going to get Freed back as soon as he's cleared to run. They're not worried about him on the mound right now at all. They don't seem to feel that there's any like residual issues with the hamstring at the moment. It's when that ball is hit between first base and the mound, when that comebacker is hit up the third base side and Max Freed has to spring out and make a play or cover first base or do those things, that's the real test for Max, and that's what they're going to have to run him through before they get him back. But if things do go according to plan, I believe April 17th is the day that Max Freed could rejoin the rotation, maybe April 16th. Either way, still a little bit of a ways away, and the Braves still trying to patch this rotation up, 
And the return of Kyle Wright is a huge, huge factor towards helping the Braves get to where they need to. And that, I feel, is as much as anything, the fact that Wright was really a glue guy in that rotation last year. Put aside the 20 wins. I think that's great. But the fact that Kyle was able to go to the post every fifth day and give the Braves those pretty much six innings or more in every single start, that's exactly what Atlanta's rotation needs right now so that it can stay on track. Now, if you take a look at the picture that is the National League East standings as we head into Sunday evening's play as we're you know, about 4 o'clock Eastern time here, so some action that has already happened during the day on Sunday. But the Braves are 6-3, and three, have a one-game lead over the New York Mets, are 5-4, and four, found their way over 500 after winning back-to-back games. Phillies have won a couple of games. We knew they weren't going to lose, uh, what, four out of every five opening up the season or five out of every six, as the case was. They're now 3-5. and five. Uh, Marlins and Nationals both 3-6 and six, as they sit at the bottom of this division. But the Braves' 6-3 and three record uh, is just behind the Milwaukee Brewers for best record in the National League. And, well, surprise, surprise, because we're doing small sample size theater, the Pittsburgh Pirates are 6-3. and three. Uh, We'll see where they are come the end of April and come the end of the 162. But either way, a good start for the Pirates, at least record-wise. But more uh, substantially and more importantly, the Braves suffered back-to-back losses to the San Diego Padres. Yeah, some of these injuries are, are making the headlines and the bigger stories that we're going to discuss, of course, on today's show. But the offense, which for the Braves I think is very – Loaded at the top with Ronald Acuna Jr. doing things that I think have him on path to be the MVP caliber player that we expect him to be. A little bit cold here in this Padres series, but it's hard to say. A couple of games hitless, does that constitute a cold streak? He was 0 for 4 the other night, reached base twice, stole a couple of bases, scored a couple of runs. Braves just happened to come up short, and that is going to happen. Then you've got Matt Olson, who I think has shown the ability to take those spring training hot streak that he had and carry it on into the regular season. He's driving in a lot of runs uh, among the National League leaders there. Ronald Acuna Jr. among the National League leaders in runs scored. And then you got Austin Riley, who on Friday night reached base five times, took an over on Saturday. But, you know, you've got that three at the top of your order. I think you're going to have the opportunity to do some very, very big things. And we'll talk about the Braves lineup a little bit more later. But this Travis Darno injury, this is the one that I think is going to start to not destabilize the lineup, but change the aspects of, what, four, five, maybe six in that order, considering that it happens the day after you had to place Michael Harris the second on the injured list as he's dealing with a lower back strain. Darno's injury, again, the seven-day concussion IL. Hopefully, he'll be able to get back. Rugnet Odor did not slide on a play at the plate, and I'm not really sure why. I know there's an explanation. Mark Bowman of MLB.com put it in there that he was worried about sliding feet first because he'd hurt himself on a play like that before, and maybe he didn't think it was going to be that close. I don't really know. Either way, a slide probably would have kept them from making as hard a contact as they did because Darno got spun around at home plate and ended up leaving the game within that next inning. So let's hear from Brian Snitker, who was discussing exactly what they saw from Darno, why he came out of the game, and of course, kind of what those next steps are with him. As progressively, I think, got worse after we took him out. So he's going to go on the seven-day concussion IL. I just know I went down in the tunnel when the doctors were looking at him and you know, it was pretty apparent he, we were going to have to take him out. So, and hopefully we, you know, gets cleared up by then and, you know, can go. You know, want to be careful with anyone, but he's got, he's had a few. Of them. He's had a few of them. Yeah. So, you know, it is, it's nothing to mess around with when your brain gets hit like that. That's Braves manager Brian Snitker discussing Travis Darno's injury as we continue here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. The Darno injury is going to change things quite a bit, not just in the lineup where he was one of Atlanta's better hitters over the first week or so, but now you're going to press Sean Murphy into, I think, familiar territory for Sean 
but a territory that the Braves were kind of hoping maybe they didn't have to, which was overtaxing either one of their catchers, particularly in the month of April. I think they wanted to just kind of work these guys in, share this workload a bit because it is a demanding position, and we found out last night one of the demands of the catching position is you might come in contact on a close play at the plate, and it could cost you playing time, and that's going to be the case for Travis Darno. Now, I know there is a, a contingent that want to see Sean Murphy play more. I think Sean Murphy would like to be in there as much as he can be, but now he's going to be called upon to take, I think, the lion's share of the duties behind home plate and become that everyday catcher that he was out in Oakland as well, where I think he played 140 games last year. Not all of them starts behind the plate, but he is a guy that I think is accustomed to and wouldn't be opposed to starting 120 to 130 or more games. You were just hoping that by having this balance that you would not have to use Sean Murphy and particularly ask him to jump in and start playing every day in the month of April. But that could be the case. We'll see how long Travis Darno was out. Chadwick Tromp has been called up from AAA Gwinnett. He showed the Braves, I think, a good offensive profile last year. I know from being down in spring training, Braves pitchers like him an awful lot, and he's a guy that they do believe in as a backup catcher. And if they didn't feel like they had the catcher depth, I don't know that they would have gone out and you know dealt away William Contreras to get Sean Murphy to begin with. But I think Chadwick Tromp is a pretty capable you know third catcher on the roster. But in this case, he could be the second catcher and will be the second catcher on the roster with Sean Murphy getting the majority of that playing time. And as I mentioned, it's not just the Darno injury this week. I mean, Colin McHugh went on the injured list as soon as the club got from, back from St. Louis. And then you saw Michael Harris the second. He slammed into the wall in the finale on Wednesday to make an outstanding catch. And Rob Paul Goldschmidt of a would-be home run or at the very least an extra base hit. He came down. It was all emotional. They're screaming. It was going to be a, a great, you know, gif that we were going to see, you know, posted across Braves Twitter. It was going to be tremendous. In fact, on that play, despite all the adrenaline, he might have jarred his back up a little bit. Then he went to steal a base, and on that headfirst slide, it tweaked it again. So Michael Harris, the second, did what I like to call the old man walk, where you're just kind of trying to stretch your back as you're walking, but you know something's not right. And for somebody who's 22 years old, he doesn't need to be doing the old man walk. And Brian Snitker, all jokes aside, said, we, looked, we felt like we were going to be down four or five days with Michael Harris. And with a 10-day injured list, it just made more sense at this point in the season uh, with a back injury not to take any chances. So he is on that 10-day I.L., Talked to Michael a little bit a couple of days ago. He feels it's a precautionary thing and that he'll be back as soon as he is eligible to, which will be on the opener of the series against the Padres in about, what, seven or so days from now, uh, that Monday. Be that as it may, we've had a lot of big stories to talk about throughout the early portion of the season for the Braves. Injuries, just one of those. As we continue, we're going to talk about the rotation, how it's taking shape, the return of Kyle Wright, when we can expect Max Fried back, and Hey, what the heck's been going on with Charlie Morton? How is he going to get on track? When will he get on track? We'll talk about it here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back in From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday afternoon, marching you up to Sunday Night Baseball. Bray is looking for a split of their four-game series against the Padres. Won the first one, lost the last couple. Uh, what will they do on Sunday night? Well, we'll find out. But if you're listening to the podcast, which uploads after the game, you'll already know. So it's like you're from the future. I don't know. But either way, make sure you subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast. Braves are sending Dylan Dodd to the mound as they look for that split against the San Diego Padres. And Dylan Dodd has been a highlight for this starting rotation. He won his major league debut. I think he was able to take all that nervous energy and anxiety and whatever else that you have from that and really channel it into a very good couple of trips to the Cardinals order. Five innings was enough. The Braves picked up that victory, and Dylan Dodd, just like that, became a major league pitcher and won with a winning decision his first time out. 
That's something that would be a big boost and will be, I think, a big boost to the Braves' rotation. We'll be getting back right-hander Kyle Wright, who has not been able to make his season debut. He was behind in spring training because he got a cortisone injection in his right shoulder and wasn't able to make his Grapefruit League debut until about the final, what, 10 or so days of spring training. So that certainly makes a big difference. Wright was a 20-game winner, and we can talk about that and what it means to be a 20-game winner in the big leagues in this particular era of baseball. It doesn't happen altogether that often, but pitcher wins are not what you want to make your case for, you know, who is or is not the best pitcher in all of baseball. But if you're out there and your team's winning more times than not when you're on the mound, it's certainly a good trend, and Kyle Wright was at the head of that trend last year. And when you did go beyond those numbers and look at how he was getting it done, you found what had become a very capable big league pitcher after several different trials and tribulations, if you will, over about a four-year run-up to becoming an everyday starter or a everyday member of that starting rotation. Somebody was getting the ball every fifth day in the big leagues. It took a while to get there, but we all loved what we saw last year, and Wright was the man who was on the mound for the Braves' only playoff win in 2022. That's certainly worth noting as well. Getting him back in this rotation, I think, is going to be a big step forward, especially because you did not plan to be without Max Fried for any length of time this year, and he went down on opening day. So just like that, two of your top four starters anyway were on the injured list. So getting Wright back, it could happen on April the 11th against the Cincinnati Reds, so I think Wright would be in line to start on Tuesday. It would be Bryce Elder's turn on Monday in this rotation. And, hey, Dylan Dodd, not the only highlight in St. Louis for the Braves. Bryce Elder came up from AAA Gwinnett, and he tossed six scoreless innings against a very capable Cardinals lineup and looked great in his return to the big league. So the Braves are going to be leaning on him. Two young pitchers, just not the two maybe you thought because Jared Schuster is not really in the picture at the moment after being optioned back down to AAA. But somebody who's been in the Braves picture for quite a while is right-hander Charlie Morton. He came up with Atlanta way back when Tom Glavin and John Smoltz were still in a Braves uniform. Glavin had just come back from the Mets. Smoltz was about to take off for an ill-fated swan song with the Cardinals and the Red Sox, or the Red Sox and the Cardinals in that order. But that was when Charlie Morton broke in. Then he was traded to the Pittsburgh Pirates and went through kind of an odyssey there to reinvent himself as a pitcher, ended up in Philadelphia momentarily. But by the time he got to the Houston Astros, he turned himself into one of the best strikeout pitchers and best right-handers in baseball for about a five- or six-year run. And that's exactly who he was when he came back to the Braves in 2021. Were it not for suffering a broken leg in the World Series in that the same season, uh, maybe we're talking about a little bit different road for Charlie Morton, but he feels like he's been over that for a while, but it's trying to get back to what it is and his essence as a pitcher, and a big part of that is the swing and miss of being a fastball, curveball pitcher. Yeah, he throws some change-ups, and he threw some good ones, I think, against the Padres in his start against them, but it's really been a grind for him more times than not. And Charlie is one of the most, I think, introspective pitchers. Like, you'll get a lot of thoughts about him, and he's pretty honest about what is happening or not happening for him on the mound. And I thought a lot of his comments after his Saturday start were interesting. He got twice as many swings and misses from the Padres lineup as he did from the Cardinals, where he gave up nine hits, just a bunch of singles, really, and surrendering a a handful of runs there. But let's hear from Charlie Morton, who is kind of assessing where he is after a couple of starts and what he's looking to work on as he tries to get back to the Charlie Morton that we expect to see every fifth day. The last game, I gave up nine singles, I think, and I felt like I wasn't getting many swings and misses Certainly not, like I think I struck out one person. Tonight, I mean, I felt early on, especially that my four-seamer, they were missing, swinging and missing a lot more than my last game. But, yeah, I mean, I guess I got a few strikeouts, and by just those three walks, I think, you know, there were some counts there I wish I could have 
obviously not walk guys and then certainly there were a couple pitches I wish I could have back but I mean I don't know I I really don't know I mean I feel like the ball was coming out well in St. Louis it was weird to see that because I felt like those were some of the best fastballs that I've thrown in a long time and to you know walk away from that one it's like I don't know if it was the team or if it was my pitch selection or it was just the heater in general but tonight um you know that's a good lineup too I mean I, I don't know I mean I don't know you know I don't know how to feel about that one other than there's some frustration because of the efficiency there and just a couple pitches that I wish I could get back. That's Braves right-hander Charlie Morton after his start against the Padres in this series. And as I look at Charlie overall, and you go back and look at his numbers, that first year with the Braves, ERA just under three and a half, part of a run through the postseason and winning the World Series that year. 216 strikeouts for Charlie in 185 and two-thirds innings, only 58 walks, only 16 home runs. Then you look at coming back and maybe the lockout, the shortened spring training, not being able to rehab in a normal manner with team doctors because you're in the middle of a lockout, so another thing to thank the owners for. And then he comes back in, has a truncated spring training, and really it, it seemed like he was always behind the first couple of three months. Then he settled in in that second half, but another early exit after getting hit in the arm with a liner in Philadelphia in the NLDS, just not the kind of season you expected from Charlie Morton. And in the middle of all of that, 28 home runs allowed, a new career high by far, the first time he'd ever allowed more than 20 in a big league season, 172 innings. He made 31 starts. He struck out 205 batters. I mean, there are some things that, you know, you'd check off. You'd like, hey, well, Charlie Morton made all his starts. Great. He struck out 200 batters again. That's also great. But the walk rate was up a little bit, and the home run rate was up quite a bit. Uh, He's only allowed the one home run. It was a solo shot to Juan Soto of the San Diego Padres, and that was one where Morton said, look, if I mess around, I walk him. You know, maybe that invites more trouble. Went after him. He's Juan Soto. He hit a homer. You just kind of, that's one of those tip your cap type in my mind. And then, you know, the strikeouts are a little bit down. The first start, I think he had one strikeout in that outing, which is very un-Charlie Morton-like. So not a lot you can glean from the early numbers, really, from Morton to know, like, has he turned the corner? Is he turning the corner? Is it a start-to-start thing where we're just going to find out as we go along? I'm more inclined to believe that. But you do look at the track record of this guy, and I've said it and will continue to, unless or until he really goes into maybe some kind of deeper, bigger slump that's more inexplicable, this, as your fourth starter, is really not a bad place to be. And when you consider that you're missing your one and three starters at the moment, and we'll talk about Spencer Strider in a moment. He's the other healthy pillar of this rotation that's kind of trying to hold it up right now. Having Charlie Morton around seems to, in hindsight, uh, not be a bad thing for the Braves rotation because think about where you might be without him. It might just be a little bit more of a difficult picture for the Braves at the moment. But as Charlie Morton still tries to solve that puzzle for him start to start, Spencer Strider also in action. He started that crazy game against the San Diego Padres, the opener of the series. The Braves ended up walking off, and you kind of forgot by the time you got to the end of that. It felt like two different games. There was the Spencer Strider portion of the game and then the crazy back-and-forth comeback portion of the game that the Braves were able to win, courtesy of Orlando Arcia's walk-off hit to bring home Eddie Rosario. But Spencer Strider... He felt that that was not really marked by the efficiency that he would like to see. You heard Charlie Morton talk about it, efficiency on the mound, really with two strikes. For a pitcher like Spencer Strider, who is going to rack up an awful lot of strikeouts as his calling card, he wants to find ways to improve, and I've heard him say it before, just be that 1% better than you were the day before. Let's hear how Spencer Strider sized up his start against the Padres and I guess what that has him working on as he looks to get back on the mound for his next outing um, this next week. That's the thing with strikeouts is they just yeah. they, you know, they take three pitches minimum. But, um, you know, obviously the home run was hit hard. But beyond that, 
some pitches that were not as well executed as they could have been, and, and guys got pieces of them and dumped them all there in center field. And generally, we don't put a guy there. So I think you know, you give credit to Machado for for hustling to get that double. You know, all else being the same, next ball is a double play instead of him getting in the rundown. Then you get a solo shot instead of a three-run homer. So little bloops happen like that, but I think if you execute better, I think they were all with two strikes. So and the home run was with two strikes. So. You know, I think that was the difference, just not, and it's early. That's, that's something that, that comes, I think, is figuring out what, what your intent level needs to be with two strikes, put guys away, and, and execute those pitches, and, and get a lot more, hopefully, so we'll figure that out. you got to be happy with the location. I mean, it seemed like you commanded that bottom of the zone, the corners, the slider, strikeouts looking you got. Is that encouraging just to know how sharp your stuff was here first week of April? Yeah, no, I mean, I think the ball's doing what I want it to do. It's just a matter of, you know, continuing to find the uh, – Sort of mechanical consistency and, and optimizing how I'm moving, and you know, it, like it's April, so you know the velo will come. The like I said, the two strike execution will come as well, and figuring out where to put the foot on the gas. But yeah, you know, there's a lot of positives to take away, and that's something we talked about when I came out. But um, obviously, I'd like to not hand five innings or four innings to the bullpen to have to cover there. That's a point of pride, I think, for most starting pitchers. You want to go as deep into the game as you can. You certainly don't want to hand the bullpen you know, half of the night's work to take care of. And with the Braves' bullpen kind of being in the position it is in right now, without having Rysel Iglesias, you have to move one of your best, I think your very best weapon in the bullpen, A.J. Minter, into that closing role. And then you don't have Colin McHugh, who is a guy that can give you not just an inning or come in and get a couple of tough batters, but this is somebody that could give you five or six outs, and you don't have that weapon in your arsenal either. So that, I think, puts more of a focus on Nick Anderson being able to do the things that he's done since the Braves have brought him up, added him to that roster. But you're also asking Dylan Lee and Lucas Lutke and Kirby Yates to step into some big innings and some big outs for this club. And it's nothing against those guys, but when you take away some of the pieces that you designed to have certain roles, it does kind of change that around. Everybody wants the challenge. Everybody wants the ball when it matters the most, and I can tell you, even if the results aren't what you want to see, I can promise you the player has already realized that the results weren't what he wanted them to be either, and it is a hard and a humbling game. And when you are down a few important members of your bullpen, it's going to be a little bit difficult to navigate things the way that you want to through a lineup. So to go back to Spencer Strider, if he's able to get six and seven innings in the books, there's less tax on that bullpen, and that I think is a big part of what he was saying there after that start. Now, Strider's first couple of starts, I'm not going to get into the you know the rate stats and all of those things because it's just not enough yet, but 11 innings and 18 strikeouts, I think that's exactly the Spencer Strider I expected to see this year. Half a dozen walks, a little bit more than you would like, and I think more than Spencer would like, and that was a little bit of an issue for him. I think more so against San Diego. He was maybe feeling that way. The start against Washington seemed to be pretty cut and dried. He was a Pretty powerful pitcher, and the Washington Nationals are not the kind of lineup that you typically run into as much trouble against. And then one mistake to Matt Carpenter and a couple of base runners to get on. You heard Spencer talk about it. There's a big difference in a couple of plays here or there and placement of the baseball here or there and the difference in a three-run homer and a solo homer. But they all count, and it's up on the board. And fortunately for the Braves, they're able to get the runs they needed late in that game to stage that comeback. The last couple of nights, though, have been just a little bit more challenging. So we'll continue to monitor this starting rotation, and hopefully with the return of Kyle Wright, a good update on Max Fried in the coming days. The Braves will have their rotation getting back more to full strength. They are hoping to have Colin McHugh back and available as soon as he's eligible to come off the injured list, and we need to know when's Rysel Iglesias going to be coming back. Those are things we'll talk about as we continue here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. But as we uh, continue on here, we're going to turn the page and look at the Braves lineup 
you're getting production from some guys you're expecting to and some that you weren't. Maybe you're not getting what you would like to get, but what's this lineup look like one through nine? What does the loss of Travis Darno do to this lineup? We'll talk about that next. This is From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, more From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back in to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I'm live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday afternoon. As we are awaiting Sunday night baseball, the Braves and Padres will wrap up their four-game series. Then the Braves will welcome the Cincinnati Reds to town, and they will have a three-game set before an off day on Thursday. Then they'll head out on the road and get a look at the Kansas City Royals. Not a team we see a lot of, so it'll be an interesting week ahead. But what have we seen out of the Braves over the first nine or so games Well, we have seen some things that we expected offensively, and I would say that both in the positive light, uh, in the vein of Ronald Acuna Jr., looking more like Ronald Acuna Jr., Matt Olson, Austin Riley, both those guys are hitting. We saw something we hoped to see, which was Orlando Arcia really taking the starting shortstop job and running with it, but then it's kind of been some mixed results. And again, I use this phrase and this term, and I'll continue to use it. It is small sample size theater. What do nine games tell us out of the course of 162 games? We're not even talking about, what, 5 6% of the season. So it's nothing, I think, to get overly alarmed about. But the difference between these nine games and, say, nine games in July or August, not that they don't count in the standings because they do, but when they're the first impression that you get of different players and different hitters and what have you, well, that's the first impression that you get. And I've heard somewhere you only get one chance to make a first impression and For some of these guys, it's been incredibly good. For others, it has been very troubling. So I went through and looked at this Braves lineup in particular, which is not always in the same order once you get past the top three. You're going to see Ronald Acuna Jr. at the top. You're going to see Matt Olson batting second. You're going to see Austin Riley hitting third. After that, we've seen different cleanup hitters. Ozzy Albies is getting another shot at it on Sunday. I think as much as anything, it might be out of necessity now that you are down Travis Darno, who is another guy who is getting an opportunity to hit in the middle of the order. You're also down Michael Harris, so that's not helping you out. Not that he was in the cleanup spot, but he was batting in that fifth and sixth spot in the middle of the order. You're going to be asking some guys to step up without two guys that you expected to be contributors in that starting nine. But I went around the horn from third to first and then into the outfield as well and behind the plate to take a look at what the Braves have done from the position value standpoint in terms of just good old-fashioned OPS. We don't really need to talk about what somebody's batting average is after 25 at-bats too much. It could be really good. It could be really bad. We're going to talk about a really bad one. Trust me, we are going to get there. But at first base, you might not be surprised to know that the Braves have gotten the best first base production in all of baseball because Matt Olson has a 1,200 OPS. That's pretty darn good. Second base, 562 OPS. Ozzie Albee's off to a bit of a slow start, or at least has kind of run into a cold spell since the club came home. That ranks 21st in baseball. Braves are 7th at third base, 7th at shortstop, and 7th in right field. The outfield gets a little bit more competitive in terms of big numbers, but Ronald Acuna Jr. with an 850 OPS, he hasn't really been a factor in this Padres series, but the thing about Ronald that we've come to learn over the past what, five or so years, when he turns it on, he can really turn it on, and it may not go off for two or three weeks, so we'll see what he's able to do. But the shortstop position is somewhere that I think you can take a positive out of this because Orlando Arcia has both offensively and defensively been a difference maker for the Braves over the first week and a half of this season. Austin Riley, OPSing about a 950 clip. That's exactly what you expected out of Austin Riley. Now, some trouble spots popped up. I mentioned second base and being 21st in OPS among all teams. This is not just individual players. This is team production for all 30 clubs. You look at center field, you haven't gotten a lot out of Michael Harris, and now he's on the injured list, but just a 630 
OPS out of Brave center fielder Sam Hilliard is going to get some play in the interim. I think Eli White up from AAA Gwinnett will get the opportunity to get some playing time as well. Maybe you'll see Kevin Pillar out in center field. That, of course, is a possibility. But then left field. This, I think, has been the Achilles heel for the Braves, not just this year but last year, because their plans have not come to fruition. The money that they have spent on this position has not really helped them to get over the hump. And not only does it affect left field, but it affects DH, which is a position that I didn't really dig into too much for the purpose of this exercise. But just follow me on this. Braves left fielders ranked 29th among all 30 major league clubs with a 325 OPS. That's not on base percentage. It's certainly not batting average. It's not even slugging percentage. That is OPS. That's on base plus slugging, just in case you're wondering. That number, as I mentioned, Matt Olson's up at 1,200. I mean, that's, that's a high-end, all-star caliber, career year type number if he's able to carry that on. And that would be wonderful to see. But, again, it's a small sample size here in the early going. But you know just from watching the way that things have unfolded in left field for this club, it has not gone according to plan. A big part of that, of course, is the fact that the Braves have faced a bunch of lefties. Eddie Rosario has only started or only played in a handful of games, and he's only got 21 at-bats. I have been encouraged by the quality of the at-bats for the most part of Eddie Rosario, and I do think that just kind of looking at his baseball savant, his stat cast numbers, and judging from what he was doing in spring training, Eddie Rosario could turn things around, but the other half of this equation, the elephant in the room for the Braves in so many different ways, including payroll, left field, production, lineup, DH, whatever it is, is Marcelo Zuna. And this is not a new story for Marcelo Zuna either, unfortunately. This was a guy who was a huge difference maker for the Braves in 2020. Darnier won a triple crown. He could have won the MVP had Freddie Freeman not won it. Ozuna looked like exactly the kind of hitter that you'd want to have in the Braves lineup for a few years. And the Braves got him for a four-year contract that I thought was more than good for both parties to continue this partnership. But I think we all know how this story's gone. 2021. He was slumping on the field. He broke his hand. He got into some off-field trouble. That turned into a lost season for him. 2022, he simply was not the same hitter that he was before the injury or at any point really in his career. He wasn't walking anymore. He was hitting some home runs. Then he got into some more off-field trouble. But by the time he got around to the end of the season, he got a little bit of playing time, and he thought maybe he's starting to put things together because he did have a good month of September, and he had an okay spring, but he has come back out. Again, I hate to really hammer down on a small sample size and to keep using that word, which, you know, we might have to just set up a jar here in the studio every time I say small sample size and drop a dollar in. But if there was anybody on this club that did not need to start the year two for 24, Marcelo Zuna is that guy, and that's exactly what has happened. Both of his hits are solo home runs. He had one a couple of nights ago to help get the Braves scoring started. And look, you'll take some home runs, but you come to expect home runs from this guy. It's everything else that he's bringing to the table that has seemingly dropped off and dropped off at such an alarming rate that even a bad contract swap seems to be impossible in this case. And if you believe the reports from last year, the Nationals wouldn't even give up Patrick Corbin for him. And Patrick Corbin is not the kind of contract that you want on your books. And I think that Mike Rizzo and his crew are probably have come to that realization over the last couple of years. But be that as it may, I went back and looked since the start of 2021 there are 219 players in baseball, and this is for 2021, 22, and the start of 23. 219 players with at least 700 total plate appearances across these two now three seasons. There are only five players, according to wins above replacement, that are less valuable than Marcelo Zuna. And it is not a who's who when you get down there. It's some guys that you would expect to see. Michael Franco, Jackie Bradley Jr., Hunter Dozier, 
Even Miguel Cabrera, who has got a big name, maybe going to the Hall of Fame, but has not been great the last couple of years. But that aside, Marcelo Zuna, a negative one war over the course of the last two, three seasons. And the big thing about this and why I bring this up, and you might be wondering, like, yeah, why am I digging so deeply into these stats? What does this all tell you? Typically, if you play that poorly for that long, you stop accruing plate appearances and you no longer qualify on these lists. The fact that he's had 700 plate appearances, which is about a full season's worth of work, with the injuries and things that went down and the suspension of 2021, with the issues last year, and then obviously with just a week and a half worth of games this year, this is just not the kind of numbers that you expected from Ozuna 179 games over that point, 32 home runs. Maybe that one he did. Only 84 runs knocked in. His walk percentage is cratered. He strikes out more. He's just not been a productive player. Now he went home, did a lot of work, played some offseason ball, got his arm worked on, felt like he came back to spring training. And to his credit, you know, he's been a pretty good teammate in terms of like how they get along in the clubhouse. That's what I've heard. That may be great. But at some point, when you're getting paid $16, $17 million a year to be a slugger in the middle of the lineup, and they're kind of having to drop you down into eighth and mix and match, and you're really on the team by virtue of having that big contract. I don't know what the break-even point is for deciding to move on and go a different direction if you're the club, but that's a realistic conversation that many clubs have to have with contracts and players and roster spots that no longer make a lot of sense. But I can't imagine now that you're into year three of this four-year deal that that's not a thought that's crossing somebody's mind. Like, where is the point of diminishing returns? And A lot of people feel like you've already reached it, but in some cases it takes a little bit longer, and there is a very real takeaway from this that that contract is what's keeping him on that roster right now and that's not something I think that a lot of people are excited about but they're going to give him the opportunity to show that he can contribute before they make a decision either way now what the timetable is for that I do not know but at some point if you continue to underperform so much so they're going to have to give the best to somebody else regardless of whether or not he has a roster spot putting that aside there has been some encouraging stuff in this lineup as i mentioned but it was just worth having that ozuna discussion so that we could all just kind of recognize that hey this is here it hasn't been working out for a while it's not off to a hot start what's going to happen well we're going to have to kind of find out the injury to michael harris certainly doesn't help because that forces other outfielders into other places so you couldn't say give sam hilliard or eli white or kevin pilar more of a run in left field i mean well you could you certainly can and they might i don't know but losing somebody like that means that all your guys who play center field might now be having to cover for Michael Harris, we hope, for only a week and a half. But we're going to find out. Ronald Acuna Jr., though, you might have heard, you might have seen this on Twitter, where you can follow me, at Grant McCauley. I am keeping up with his quest for 40-40. That's something that I think everybody feels is perfectly within the reach of this young slugger, and I feel like Ronald, if he stays healthy, is going to get there this year. The power seems to be back. More importantly, the launch angle seems to be back. Not only is he hitting the ball hard, he's lifting it again. We've seen him do some dynamic things with his arm. We've seen him do some dynamic stuff in the field. On the base paths, really, it just seems like Ronald Acuna Jr. is back. And as Ronald gets hot and Ronald has the ability to ignite this Braves lineup, I think that things are going to work themselves out offensively. The last couple of nights against the Padres notwithstanding, Atlanta's off to a decent start from the offensive side. But there are those question marks that they're still trying to answer. And one of them is going to be the loss of Travis Darno for at least a week to the concussion IL. Sean Murphy, I'm sure, would like to get some more bats and get his season going a little bit at the plate. That's been another point of focus for a lot of Braves fans. And now you're going to see more Sean Murphy. So if you're asking for it, you're definitely going to get it. And I do think he'll be a better hitter in the Braves lineup than he was in the Athletics lineup just by pure virtue of not having to play at the Coliseum anymore. As you look at center field, Sam Hilliard, maybe Eli White, 
perhaps Kevin Pillar, who hasn't played there a ton lately but has played there some in his career, are guys that you're going to be looking at with Michael Harris out of the lineup. And some folks have asked, and I just want to answer this, and I talked about this with Dukes and Bell earlier in the week, I do not foresee them moving Ronald Acuna Jr. out of right field and back into center field. Can he play there? Yes. Are they going to start moving other pieces to overcome the loss of Harris? No, I don't think so. And when we're not talking about a long-term type injury, I don't think that they really need to come in and sit down in the war room and say, all right, how do we deal with the lack of a center fielder? And this is what you go out and get all that depth for. This is what we saw in spring training. And that's the other word. If I got a jar here for small sample size, I got to have a jar here for depth. But I never expected the Braves to deal with half a dozen injuries of varying degrees in the first couple of weeks of the season and be taxed the way that they are in the starting rotation, in the bullpen, and now it's starting to make its way into the lineup where you've lost two regular players over the course of just this weekend series against the San Diego Padres. So that's what's going on with the Atlanta Braves lineup. But there was somebody who was a part of the Braves lineup for about a decade plus. And when he was in there, he was not only doing big things at the plate, but he was doing things that we had never seen in the field, the likes of the things he was doing in the field. And I, of course, am speaking of Andrew Jones, the Braves' gold glove center fielder 10 times over, Hall of Fame candidate as well. He's got 434 career home runs for Andrew. That's pretty nice for a quote-unquote defensive specialist, which he was far more than that. He's got a Cooperstown case that seems to gain steam every year, and the Braves made a big decision this past week to honor Andrew Jones by retiring his number 25. That was a number that remained in service. Some of them get rested. You might have heard on From the Diamond last week when I was talking about the Yankees retiring a lot of numbers. They have a couple of other ones, including CC Sabathia's, that they're just not issuing right now out of respect for a player that spent a long time with that team. The Braves never really rested the number 25. Tyler Flowers used it. There were three different players, including Alex Dickerson, Ryan Goins, and I believe Jake Marisnik, that used it just last year. But the Braves, I think, have finally you know, heard a lot of the outcry of, hey, why isn't 25 retired? And they have responded by retiring that number. There'll be a ceremony a little bit later this season. So congratulations to Andrew Jones as he gets his number retired. I think that's just another feather in the cap of when you're talking about a Cooperstown case and somebody that built a legacy of defensive excellence, the likes of which we have not seen in the outfield at any time and may not see again. I think having your number retired goes pretty good on that Cooperstown resume. We'll see if that helps out. But congratulations to Andrew Jones on that. When we come back, we're going to turn our attention to something we saw on the field for the very first time on Saturday. The Atlanta Braves debuted their City Connect uniforms, and we're going to have a big discussion about what went into the creation of those, the creative, I guess, impetus that came from the 70s jerseys that we have come to love over the years. And I got to talk to Insung Kim, who's a creative director for the Atlanta Braves. You'll hear my conversation with him as we dive into the Atlanta Braves City Connects next, right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Back to Grandma Coley for more from the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Thanks for spending part of your Sunday afternoon with me. I'm with you each and every Sunday here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And you can take the show with you. Download the podcast wherever you get your favorite podcast. You can also find it on the Odyssey app. And if you want links to all the things I've got going on, fromthediamond.com is the place to find those. Now, there's a lot of focus on the Braves' home opening series against the San Diego Padres. You had a great road trip, 5-1, and one, as the club came home. They had a walk-off win to start things off. Then a couple of losses, a couple of setbacks, if you will. But the Braves still 6-3 and three heading into Sunday's finale and also debuting a new look over the weekend at Truist Park. 
The rain subsided on Saturday, and we got to see the City Connect uniforms. It's been really interesting seeing the feedback on these because they're very familiar. I talked about this over on Instagram. I made a post. You can check it out, at Grant McCauley. Kind of going through some of the details that I like about the City Connect jersey, and it's steeped in history. It's founded on the legacy of Hank Aaron, and when you look inside the details of this thing, Hank Aaron's fingerprints are all over it, whether it's in the collar where you've got the 715 from the scoreboard of Atlanta Fulton County Stadium from April 8th, 1974, when that 715 flashed up on that scoreboard and Hank Aaron rounded second. Then those two gentlemen ran out and escorted him in past third base and on home where his teammates were waiting for him in a dog pile. And Tom House came racing out of the bullpen to present Aaron with his 715th home run ball. So when you tap into a very palpable memory like that, then I think it elicits a lot of good feelings for Braves fans. It's the nostalgia kick that we get. But the Nike City Connect program is not really about being a throwback per se. In fact, more times than not, it's been about creating something new for a club, a different look, an alternative look. And we've seen that, whether it's the Boston Red Sox and that neon green business they've got going on, which, by the way, not necessarily my cup of tea. Not sure, no pun intended, if it's anybody's cup of tea up there in Boston. But looking aside from that, the San Diego Padres have kind of this beach vibe thing going on. The Angels, I feel like it was more of a surfer type thing. Not sure why the Dodgers decided to go in all solid blue, but that's their thing. And that's their particular city connect. But for Atlanta, I think there was so much conversation about what were they going to decide on? Were we going to end up with some version of something that was based on the Georgia peach kind of thing? Were we going to dread the fact that it could potentially say Hot Lana across the front? And thankfully, it did not say any of that or have any peach-colored aspects to it, at least from my opinion. But I think that there were a lot of different factors that led the Braves and Nike to unveiling Atlanta City Connects, which takes so many different nods and notes from the 1970s Braves uniforms, like the one Hank Aaron was wearing when he broke the home run record. So how exactly did this uniform come to be? Well, to get inside the process of creating this, I caught up with Insung Kim, who's a Braves VP and creative director, to get an idea of how exactly the Braves arrived on a City Connect that pays a lot of respects to a previous jersey design, one that is, I think, equal parts iconic and very recognizable for the Atlanta Braves, if not for Henry Aaron himself. So here's my conversation with Insung, who gave me a lot of time and a lot of insights on how exactly the Braves City Connects came to be. We're here with Insung Kim, VP and Creative Director for the Atlanta Braves, on what is, I think, an exciting weekend. Anytime you get to introduce a little something new into the lexicon, or I guess in this case, into the uniform of a Major League Baseball club, fans are going to get a chance to get their hands on something new and exciting. In this case, maybe something a little bit classic in the midst of all of that. The City Connect uniforms debuted on Saturday night. What was your impression of the debut? And then I want to talk a little bit about the creation of the City Connects. Yeah, when I first saw the uniforms on field for the first time tonight, I was uh, I was almost in tears. They looked so beautiful. They turned out so nice. There was uh, a lot of hard work between um, you know our team and the Nike design team and just everybody on our um, on our staff. We were just so proud of this uniform and the way it turned out. So uh, it was really nice to see the, the players take the field in them for the first time today. I got to hear from Braves manager Brian Snitker before the game, and one of the big things that stands out about this and one of the big things that stands out about the Atlanta Braves franchise is the connection, the legacy with Henry Aaron, who was the home run king 
as of April the 8th, 1974. This is a very familiar uniform because it takes a lot of nods and notes from that uniform. How important was that when designing the Atlanta Braves City Connect? It was really important for us to make sure that, um, you know, we recognized, um, you know, the home run king, Hank Aaron, um, in the design. And, um, you know, once a year during Hank Aaron week, we wear the 74 throwbacks, or we have been, and we love seeing them. The players love wearing them, and we wanted to give the fans and the players what they wanted. And... Um, you know, we love hearing from the fans and non-Braves fans about how these are the best looking uniforms in all of baseball. And, yeah. you know, and we agree. So, you know, why not wear it more often? And we saw City Connect as the perfect opportunity to do that. And now we wear them every Saturday night in home games. So a great opportunity to honor something that's been a big part of the Atlanta Braves for over four decades now, but also new and refreshed. So when you walk into a meeting with Nike creatives or whoever it was, or even just maybe in your mind, kind of looking at it as a blank canvas, how did you start to formulate or come up with the ideas that would eventually become the City Connect? How many people, I guess, had a hand in that? Well, there was a small group of folks on the Braves side that work with the Nike design team. And, um, you know, they ask us questions on, you know, what do you think should be on your City Connect design? Well, well, you know, after discussing internally, we went back to them and said, you know what? It needs to be about Hank Aaron. We need to honor Hank in this design. You know, we also wanted to make sure that we represented Atlanta, our city, with the A on our chest because that's what folks who live here, that's the nickname for Atlanta, it's right. the A, right? That's what we call it. So uh, we're doing two things in this design. We're recognizing Hank, we're recognizing um, our wonderful city. And we think that it looks beautiful on the field. It looks amazing to see all the fans wearing it in the stands. So we're really proud of it. Now the Braves have a fan base that stretches from coast to coast, maybe even all around the world. And being in homes from coast to coast for the better part of three or four decades with TBS, I think has made Braves country what it is. So when you talk about a city connect, and I guess the idea of connecting with the city, Braves country is a much bigger place. So Henry Aaron, I think, was the kind of note that really strikes a chord with absolutely everyone. Yeah, yeah. And and that's the thing that's a little bit hard about um, designing a city connect for the Braves because, like you said, we have such a huge fan base all over the country. And also Atlanta itself is a city that's changing and evolving. And, you know, it's not there's all the cliches of uh, what people think about Atlanta, hot Atlanta or peaches. But, right. you know, that's not exactly what it is. People who live here know that it's a more complicated and more um you know, more modern city. And we wanted this uniform to reflect that, that it's a, it's a nod to our past, but at the same time, it's a modern take on it. So you'll see very modern cues in the design to the updated sleeve design, to the script A on the front. So it's a modern take on a classic uniform. So as you talk to the Nike crew and the Nike design team, did they bring ideas to the table? Were there a lot of different prototypes out there before you got to this one? Or was this just one that you were able to just organically come to without really having to go through a whole bunch of different tries? You know, uh, just like any design process, there's a lot of uh, editing and a lot of um, things that end up on the cutting room floor. So yeah, there were some designs that didn't make the cut, obviously. But when we went to them, we told them the main concept that we wanted and they came back to us and showed us, you know, three to five different designs that reflected that concept and and um, I think we landed on the one that everybody was happy with. I think a question I'm curious about as far as City Connect is concerned is this something that has like a certain amount of time that it'll be in service or is it something that will be in service until somebody decides hey we're gonna make a new City Connect? Uh, that's right it's a three-year program so we'll okay. be uh, we'll, we'll have these uh, designs for the next three years and then on to the next design so it's a long process and we'll come up with something really cool and innovative. 
Well, the Braves have no shortage of classic uniforms. The 1974s, I think, always excite people when they get to see them. I know I've talked to players. Brian Snitker, as I mentioned earlier, he always likes putting on that old-style uniform. So this one really able to kind of be the best of both worlds, if you will. Are there other designs that you've seen just from kind of going through maybe the Braves' uniform history of this club that might be the kinds of uniforms that you might draw some creative impetus from going forward absolutely but i don't want to spoil anything so i'm not going to say anything however there are some really cool designs in our past you know we have the powder blue we have the the pinstripes we have the 80s with a with a red white and blue so we have no shortage of design uh, uniform designs to pull from and you know maybe we'll do something different next time who knows yeah, as a child of the 80s, I've been lobbying long and hard just to what, maybe just one time those red, white, and blues, those home whites again one more time. But I also tweeted right before spring training started, hey, if you want to solve the City Connect problem, here are the 1974s. I had no idea it was going to be so literal and figurative and yeah, I think you guys really struck a great chord with this again. And thanks for the time and for sharing some of the insight that was behind creating the Brave City Connect with me. Thanks. Appreciate it. My thanks again to Ensung Kim, VP for the Braves and their creative director. As you heard, there are a lot of things that go into creating a City Connect uniform. I don't think you're surprised about that. I have a ton of uniform questions to ask him, and I got some of them in. And then we chatted for a little while about some of the other aspects of, you know, Braves throwback uniforms and what kind of designs we could see in the future. Will we get those throwback uniform nights back? I'm not sure anybody knows the answer to that question, because right now, Nike has a four-in-one policy, which is two home and two road uniforms which of course for the Braves will be the home whites or the home red. And then on the road, you have the standard gray and then the blue alternate jerseys. That's what the Braves have as their four primaries. The plus one is for the City Connect. So five uniforms that you can wear throughout the course of the season. I'm of the opinion that baseball, more than any other sport that Nike is in charge of the uniforms for and has that contract, baseball is so much about nostalgia. And the nostalgia kick that you get from throwback nights, it's truly unique. And I feel like for somebody who grew up in the 80s on the Braves, right, I did not see this 70s style Hank Aaron feather sleeve uniforms in action until it was a throwback night. But I was very familiar with the uniforms because what moment did I picture every time that uniform came to mind or I saw that uniform? It was Hank Aaron hitting his 715th home run. Now, I went back into the archives, as you might expect, and I have a lot of old score books and team yearbooks from the Braves from well before my time, back into the 70s. And I found the 1972 Braves scorebook that I've had for a little while, and I love looking back through these because you get player profiles and pictures and things that you know, are kind of lost to time. They're not on the internet. This was the pre-digital age, so if you wanted to learn about the players or perhaps a new uniform, then you had to actually track down a book or a periodical, a magazine, that would give you the inside scoop on that. And that's exactly what I did. So 1972 was when that Hank Aaron mid-70s Braves uniform actually debuted. It wasn't just 1974. Now, it stayed in service pretty much unchanged, just some little tweaks over the course of about five years. It followed a period in which the Braves wore pinstripes for three years, from 1969 to 1971. They had a gray flannel road uniform that went with that. But when you think about the pullover, royal blue and white, and it's reversed for the road uniform where it's mostly blue with the white sleeves and the feather, as opposed to the home one we're so familiar with and that the City Connects are pulling from with the mostly white with blue sleeves, this was a whole new and a whole different look. They went away from the button-up style jersey, and of course in the 70s and 80s, a lot of teams did. 
That's obviously come back into style, and nobody's wearing a pullover jersey anymore. I found a quote from former Braves PR director Lee Wolburn, who said, A lot of factors were considered about making the change to that new uniform in 1972, but one of the most significant considerations is Hank Aaron's ever-increasing publicity. Now, I found this really fascinating because the Braves were well aware of Hank Aaron's date with destiny to break Babe Ruth's home run record. That was kind of baked into this change. So Walburn went on to say, over the next couple of years, Hank will be photographed more than any other sports figure in history. As you look back, I would say that Walburn was on to something. So he said that they felt it was only just that the uniform he wears is pleasing to him and the best looking in the game today. Now, at the time, I think that reviews were mixed on the Braves uniforms, those mid-70s, though they have become iconic now. But it is worth noting that both Hank Aaron and Eddie Matthews, who was a Braves manager in the mid-70s and, of course, a Hall of Famer and longtime Brave, both had input on what this uniform was going to look like with the royal blue sleeves, the feather. They wanted it to be recognizable, the team did, upon doing that redesign. But they wanted to go in a very different direction. And I would say, over time, Perhaps those uniforms have finally gotten their due, and maybe the only reason they did is because that's what Hank Aaron was wearing when he made history and broke Babe Ruth's home run record. One other little note from that 1972 Braves scorebook that I found, there was a photo in there where you had both the PR director and the graphics designer looking at some of the concept art, and it says a total of 16 different uniform prototypes were made before the final design was approved. That's for those 1974-style throwbacks that we have come to love over the years. While I was really interested to ask Insung Kim about prototypes for the City Connects, man, would I ever like to see the prototypes for the original 1974 uniforms. But that's just me. I'm fascinated by this stuff, kind of a nerd for the uniform history, and definitely enjoyed talking to Insung and going back into a time capsule to see what the Braves were saying when they debuted these uniforms for the very first time back in the 1972 season. So that's a little chat about Braves uniforms. I always find this kind of stuff fascinating, and I want to share it with you here on From the Diamond. When we come back, we'll jump back into our Braves and baseball discussion. we got a lot more to go here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley with you on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday late afternoon, early evening, I guess, as we approach Sunday Night Baseball. I like to take a look, as I call it, around the big leagues. A little show I used to do here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game for all of you fans who may, as John Chuckery likes to say, have the home version of the game. Got started back in 2015. But I like to find stories typically from all around the baseball world, not just the big leagues, to catch my eye. And if you are a baseball fan who has access to the Internet in the last probably 12 or so hours, you have heard this story. And let me just say from somebody who worked in the minor leagues as a play-by-play guy for a while, not only have I never seen this, I've never even heard of this happening. Uh, So let's take a look down at what was going on uh, with a no-hitter that was won by the Chattanooga Lookouts over the Rocket City Trash Pandas. And of all the great minor league baseball names, I think that the Trash Pandas have certainly carved out their own corner of that debate. Double-A Southern League, though. And the Chattanooga Lookouts are the longtime affiliate of the Cincinnati Reds, just in case you're curious about that. And for the three of you that are, thanks for listening. So seven runs that were scored in the final frame of this seven-inning game. Ben Joyce was the unlucky man who was on the mound for Rocket City. He walked the bases loaded and did record a couple of outs, so good for him. But the final one, that was a little bit harder to get for Rocket City because another walk brought in the first run of the game, 
Three more scored because the center fielder, Jeremiah Jackson, missed what appeared to be, at least according to reports. I didn't watch the game, and I haven't seen all of the highlights, but I'll go by what's said. He missed a routine fly ball. That may have been the worst time to miss a routine fly ball in the history of baseball because it just opened the floodgates. Again, a no-hitter is going on. Three runs just scored, and the rest of the frame went hit by pitch, hit by pitch, hit by pitch, run scored, walk scores a run, wild pitch, hit by pitch, and then a strikeout that finally ended the inning. As if all those walks weren't bad enough, then you miss a fly ball and then hit by pitch three times in a row, then a walk, then a wild pitch, then a fourth hit by pitch. I can't even imagine what this was like to call as a minor league baseball broadcaster. And by the way, just in case you're curious, and again, for the three of you who are, April 9th, 2009 was the day that I called my first professional baseball game for the Charlotte Stone Crabs of the Florida State League. They are no longer a part of minor league baseball. They were contracted a couple of years ago, but that was a really great night. So every day, or every day, well, every day I think about it, but every year on April the 9th, I like to think about, you know, the opportunities that I've had in my baseball career. One of them is talking about all of this stuff with you guys right here on 92.9 The Game as well. But I always enjoyed that minor league baseball experience because it's just, it's, I guess, maybe simpler times. You see a very different side of the game because everybody is grinding to try to Reach that same goal. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, the starting pitcher of that that night's game, anywhere on the diamond, in the dugout, on the support staff, in the front office of a minor league team, everybody kind of aspires to take that next step and reach the major leagues. And, you know, that's kind of part of the fun. And in the minor leagues, you'll also see all kinds of zany promotions and weird things that go on. But I did not ever think I would see seven runs score in an inning and a team wins a game in which they were no hit because of something like this. It's just truly, truly out there. Something I did see at the major league level that happened on Sunday, I mentioned this, and Dom, my producer, pointed out as, as no good deed goes unpunished. I said, hey, look at the Pittsburgh Pirates starting out the season 6-3 and three, just like the Braves. Maybe things are going right for them here. Maybe not, because Sunday happened and they lost O'Neill Cruz to a fractured ankle. There was a collision, and he had to leave the game, quite obviously, with that injury. Uh, the Pirates did pick up a one nothing victory at PNC Park, but as he was attempting to score from third base in the bottom of the sixth inning, Yom Makata's throw uh, went to home plate, and Cruz's late slide caused him to crash into the catcher, and his left leg bent awkwardly, and he fell to the ground and was forced to leave the game. But that was not all that was going on in that play. Let's take a listen to the call from AT&T Sportsnet Pittsburgh because the O'Neill Cruz injury was just half of what was unfolding right there at PNC Park. Chopped. Runner breaks for the plate, and he's going to be out. And Cruz looks like he's hurt. Yeah, he went in awkwardly. Hopefully nothing serious. Oh, that does not look good. Yeah, he went in awkwardly. And now Santana took exception to it, and benches are going to empty. Carlos Santana took exception and was drawing, I believe, with Savala. And there was some pushing and shoving going on. Meanwhile, they're trying to tend to Cruz as... The bullpen's also empty. Carlos Santana still wants to get at somebody. O'Neill Cruz still down as the scrum. Look at this, they're trying to keep the players away from the man who's down, O'Neill Cruz. Again, that was the call courtesy of AT&T Sportsnet in Pittsburgh. And it's one thing to have an injury on a play, but when an injury sparks a fight, not only is that obviously not an ideal situation for everybody that's about to get into that fracas, but somebody is down and in a prone position. I mean, this is kind of the exact opposite 
of when Edwin Diaz got hurt in the World Baseball Classic in the midst of the celebration. All of a sudden, his teammates had to kind of move away from him because he was injured. This, you got tempers flaring, uh, whatever was going on with Carlos Santana, who is now with the Pittsburgh Pirates, by the way, who apparently was not a big fan of whatever was going on with Sebi Zavala, who was the catcher for the White Sox that received that throw. You know, these things are going to happen. I mean, there is going to be contact at home plate. We saw it just in the Saturday night game with Rugnet Odor crashing into you know, Travis Darno, and whether there was intent or, or not, you know, it's just one of those things that happened. So uh, once they were able to untangle all of that, the bad news is that O'Neill Cruz fractured his ankle. So he's going to be out for a while. So if you were a Pittsburgh Pirates fan and you're trying to figure out, you know, what are we building here? What are we doing here? O'Neill Cruz is one of the reasons I think you, you have to come out to the ballpark and they're going to be without him for quite some time. He was down for several minutes, left the field alongside uh, bench coach, Don Kelly and their physical therapist as well. They had difficulty putting any weight on his left leg. You absolutely hate to see that. Good that he was able to leave the field with assistance rather than having to be carted out, but clearly this is going to be a pretty serious injury. So uh, speedy recovery. We'll send out those hopes for O'Neill Cruz of the Pittsburgh Pirates, who was involved in that little fracas as well. Uh, on a lighter note, I guess, if we want to call it that, I, I guess it is, I mean, because it's not injuring anybody, but it's certainly changing the game of baseball, and that, of course, is the rules change. It's the pitch clock in particular. We have seen very isolated incidents in Braves games. I think Colin McHugh got one of those violations. Otherwise, I'm having a hard time thinking of too many of them. They're just, honestly, through nine games, there haven't been enough of them to really stand out, and I guess that's a good thing. That's what we want. I think through the first week of baseball, MLB across the game was averaging less than one violation per game, and that was down about 50% from what they were in spring training on the average per game. Well, Manny Machado back in spring training became the first player um, who was called for one of these pitch clock violations, and he just put another first on his list as well. This came back on Tuesday. It did not happen in the Braves series. Machado became the first player ejected for an argument based on the pitch clock as he was tossed in the first inning as the Padres were playing the Diamondbacks. Ron Culpa was the uh, home plate umpire, and he just determined, and, and I'll get into the system of how exactly this is determined, that you know, the eight-second rule is you're supposed to be in the box and alert to the pitcher. We've talked a little bit about the nuance of that and, and what goes into this rule and how maybe one day it'll be tweaked, but this is what it is right now. If you're wondering how exactly the umpire is watching the clock, the pitcher, and the batter, the umpire receives a tone that reminds him to look at that particular time to the batter so that he doesn't have to always basically be watching all the time. There's physically, I think humanly, no way possible really to do that and to catch every single violation. But he caught Machado adjusting his batting gloves, and uh, Machado wasn't a big fan of that, so he got tossed from the game. And, Dom, we've talked a little bit about the pitch clock here yeah. over the first, what, month or so. I know we're not trying to affect the game with this thing, <laughs> but we knew it was going to happen. This may be the first time a player gets ejected for it, but I'm pretty sure it won't be the last. Yeah, it's going to happen. And is there anyone in MLB who hates the pitch clock more than Manny Machado right now? Not at the moment. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I, and it's one of those things that you don't notice it until you do. And that, I think, is kind of the way you want most of these changes to be, that there won't be you know, three, four, five, six of these right. things going on. And that's why they put it in in spring training and went mm -hmm. ahead and went through all those dress rehearsals to have this thing figured out. But... The pitch clock was not just uh, under the skin of Manny Machado just once in his game. I'll point that out. Mm -hmm. It happened in the very first inning. It caused him to miss the rest of the game. But Shohei Otani became the first player in Major League history, and I'm really interested to see who's going to be the second, and if the second is also named Shohei Otani, <laughs> to be called for pitch clock violations on the mound and at the plate. It happened on Wednesday as Otani was busy picking up a win for the Los Angeles Angels. 
just a bizarre play against Seattle. Well, I guess two bizarre plays. Mm. He was called for working too quickly in the top of the first inning against Cal Raleigh. This was something that happened in spring training where they had to slow down Max Scherzer and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, you've <laughs> got to give the batter adequate time to get in here. He's got to be alert to you. We're not trying to start just a revolution of quick yeah. <laughs> pitching. Otani wasn't intending to do that. It's just kind of something that happened. Mm-hmm. And then he didn't make it to the plate in time for one of his at-bats. So, I don't know. Shohei Otani continues to show us things in Major League Baseball we just didn't know were possible for one man to accomplish. Yeah, I was going to say, and it's funny because you, you mentioned exactly what I was going to ask you. Who do you think is going to be the next person? I don't think, unless it's him, I don't think we're ever going to see this again. Yeah, unless we find another guy who is able to be a – a two-way player yeah. for a substantial amount of time. Mm-hmm. And if you notice, amongst the many rules that Major League Baseball changed, and I don't have them all here in front of me, but the rules to be a position player to get into the game are crazy now. It either has to be extra innings, you have to be down by eight runs in the ninth, or up by ten runs late in the game if you're the winning team, and I guess you want to, for whatever reason, throw a position player, which I don't know why you would. If you're winning the game, it typically seems to be something where you don't mind having pitchers do the job. Right. <laughs> when you're getting your brains beat in in the eighth inning by 13 runs, that's usually when you see position players make their way out there. But it did go from being a novelty about six or seven years ago to being something that I'm just absolutely kind of tired of seeing at this point and kind of against the competitive integrity of the game. But be that as it may, I'm not going to be the only one worried about the competitive integrity of the game. I'm sure Major League Baseball is going to get right on that. One other note, Bryce Harper of the Philadelphia Phillies took on-field batting practice for the first time since his Tommy John surgery. Phillies are hoping to have him back. Perhaps by the end of April, certainly by May. We'll see how all of that plays out. When we come back here on From the Diamond, we'll wrap things up. We'll take one more look ahead to Sunday Night Baseball. And, of course, we will get you set for the week to come for the Atlanta Braves. This is From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. This is From the Diamond. This is Grant McCauley with you on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game from the Kia Studios. Appreciate you riding along with me. Make it from the Diamond, part of your baseball show and podcast regimen. Make sure you are subscribed to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts. You can find it there. You can follow me on Twitter at Grant McCauley. The show is at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. I am also at Grant McCauley on Instagram at From the Diamonds where you can find the show. You can like it on Facebook as well. And if you need links to all of those things and much more, you can head on over to FromTheDiamond.com. You'll find them there on that top navigation bar. We talked a lot early in the show about what is going on for Atlanta in this starting rotation, what they have seen, and, of course, what is going to be happening, hopefully, with some guys getting healthy. Welcoming Kyle Wright back as we kind of turn our attention ahead to the week to come, which is the Cincinnati Reds for a three-game series, an off day on Thursday. And then you've got a three-game series in Kansas City against the Royals, a club that the Braves do not see too often. That's for sure. Uh, the Red series should see Bryce Elder on the mound in game one. He'd be facing Graham Ashcroft. Red's four and four on the year. So the Braves are seeing a club that's around 500, but they do have some arms. I will point that out. You got Ashcroft and Bryce Elder in the opener. Luis Sessa is scheduled to throw game two, and that would tentatively be, that's April the 11th, Kyle Wright being activated from the injured list. He threw over 80 pitches and six innings in his. Rehab start for Gwinnett. So you got to feel like the pitch count certainly there. I got a chance to talk to Kyle a couple of days ago. He said he felt great the day after. Really, Brian Snicker said they just needed him to throw on the side and make sure that there's no residual soreness uh, whatsoever in that shoulder, which Kyle said, I haven't been dealing with the soreness for a while. Now it's just about getting my you know, stamina back on the mound, building the pitch count back up, and 
being ready to go out and give the club five, six innings at the very least. And for Kyle, I'm sure he'd like to go out and give the club six or seven innings every single time, if not more. But we'll see if he's able to come off the injured list on Tuesday. That's the expectation. He will be facing Luis Sessa. And then let me tell you about Wednesday, because I think Wednesday is a really fascinating matchup. Earlier in this particular show, we talked about the excitement that is every fifth day when Spencer Strider takes the ball. The guy struck out 18 batters over his first 11 innings, just picking up right where he left off with his over 200 strikeouts and, what, 130 innings last year. He's got a triple-digit fastball. He's got that great slider. Well, the Reds have kind of their version of that, and his name is Hunter Green. That's who's going to be on the mound in the finale. Now, Green has not had quite the same luck over the first couple of starts. He has been knocked around just a little bit. 13 strikeouts on his eight innings. And this is a guy that pumps a 100-mile-an-hour fastball up there quite a bit. Had a very good rookie season, I thought. I mean, you're kind of taking some lumps, and when you're with a team like the Reds, maybe there are some highs and lows for him. But 164 strikeouts against 48 walks in 125 and two-thirds innings. ERA just under four and a half. But when you consider you pitch half your games in the Great American Ballpark, you're going to take a few lumps. You're going to give up a few home runs. That's just going to be one of the things that happens. 24 home runs allowed last year for Green. Only one thus far in his first couple of starts. And I would think that Truist Park might be a little bit kinder than Great American Ballpark. But you talk about a matchup of two high-octane, impressive young pitchers that you would love to see matching up for the next five, ten years, maybe. I don't know if you can pick two better ones in terms of pure stuff than Spencer Strider and Hunter Green. The Reds are looking to build what they can in that rotation, and Green's got to be right at the center of that. No two ways about it. He'll be turning 24 this year, so they're right about the same age. But Green, just an extremely impressive right-hander. He'll be on the mound for the Reds as they take on the Braves in the finale of that three-game set. So a lot of baseball to be played betwixt now and then. The things you're hoping to see in that series, A, getting Kyle Wright back into the rotation, getting the offense going again, and hopefully as you look at what's going on up and down that Braves order, you're able to get something out of left field and something out of DH and get that going. The Braves would also love to see Ozzie Albies get going. He has had a, a rough one a couple of nights ago. He left eight men on base, an 0 for 5. And when you're in the middle of the order, you know the pressure is obviously on there. You're going to be the key man to a lot of rallies. And that just wasn't working out for Ozzy. He's been kind of cold since coming home. Had a pretty decent spring training. And the Braves were without him for nearly 100 games last year. And I, I kind of forecasted that the difference it could make having a healthy Ozzy Albies for 162 games, adding in Ronald Lacuna Jr. kind of being back to normal, and hopefully Eddie Rosario getting the same opportunity to step up and get back to norms for himself. That could be a pretty serious difference maker for this club if you can get those guys hitting closer to their norms. When you consider the start Acuna's off too, you look at what Matt Olson has been doing. He's batting 361. He's knocked in 10 runs thus far. Some strikeouts for Matt. I think that's kind of just part of his game, but you can't argue with the run production. This guy has really been doing it here in the early going. Ronald Acuna Jr., if you're keeping up with a 40-40 tracker, I'll go ahead and let you know he's got two home runs on the year. I think if Ronald is going to continue to feel the way he is, he might end up stealing 50 or 60 bases. And that should be pretty exciting considering – you're kind of wondering what kind of player he was going to be last year. It at least made you doubt. I mean, even if you were the most staunch Ronald Acuna Jr. supporter, the staunchest, I think that's still a word, you still had to wonder at times, like, where did the power go? You know, what's going on? He looked very timid in the outfield. I haven't seen any of that stuff this year. So if you were at one point or another kind of doubting what exactly you were going to get out of Ronald Acuna Jr. in 2023, the early returns say it looks like you got your MVP caliber talent back because the exit velocities are up, the sprint speed is up, 
He's playing with reckless abandon in the outfield. He's made some diving plays. He made a leaping catch against the wall to Rob Juan Soto the other night. That I thought was a big play because when you consider how he got hurt, it was going back onto the warning track and taking a leap at Marlins Park and coming down wrong on that knee, but he was able to make that play at the wall. That, I thought, was pretty impressive. As far as the week ahead for the Braves, three games against the Cincinnati Reds after they wrap up this series on Sunday night baseball against the Padres, the off day on Thursday, then three more against the Kansas City Royals, and then we'll be back with you right here on From the Diamond as we continue to talk Braves and baseball with you each and every Sunday here on 92.9 The Game. Appreciate you joining me once again. Make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. Appreciate all the help from Dom, keeping the show going each and every week, and for each and every one of you who have joined us on the show. We will catch you next week on From the Diamond. Until then, I'm Grant McCauley. So long, everyone.